It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. When we think of the titans of industry, we used to think of names like Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Vanderbilt. But today, in 2020, we have new names that dominate the world economy. Zuckerberg, Cook, and Thiel. While those names control industries that are less obvious than giant steel bridges or skyscrapers, their products have quietly infiltrated our entire lives. They're wondering what's happening to their data. Can they trust Facebook? A growing number of these workers are either killing themselves or trying to. And Foxconn doesn't know why. It's the latest in a string of high-profile mishaps for Uber, everything from price gouging and privacy invasion to allegations of assault and rape. And though Facebook has faced grilling questions surrounding its manipulation of our political system, and even Apple is rightfully criticized for its use of labor in China, one company is only just coming under the collective microscope. Amazon. Jeff Bezos' empire has enjoyed a meteoric rise with little scrutiny. And now it's arguable that it has become the most powerful single corporate entity in the entire world. But what does that mean for all of us? In an excellent new documentary for PBS's Frontline, journalist James Jacoby examines Amazon with a fine-tooth comb, asking the same question throughout. Has Amazon gone too far? This week, we got Jacoby on the show to tell us more. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. Well, Mr. Jacoby, thank you for coming on Cyber to talk about this. This is an excellent documentary. I loved it. And just like your last Facebook Frontline doc, it's sort of really, I mean, this is something we talk about, these types of companies we talk about all the time. But I think you did a really great job of showing exactly what the cultural impact of these companies are. And Amazon in particular has kind of enjoyed this meteoric rise and hasn't had the same scrutiny. Why, Why do you think that is? I think in part because it's uh, it delivers for us all, you know, regularly. You know, 150 million people are Prime subscribers and they click one button on their phone and something arrives the next day and they don't really give it a second thought. And they hadn't had a scandal like Facebook has had where, you know, you had the 2016 election and you're kind of turning information ecosystems upside down all over the world you know, Amazon really has evaded that type of scrutiny in part because they haven't had a major scandal. And yeah, but they they also, they haven't, none of their products or what they do has come under serious scrutiny, even though what they do can be, I mean, you you definitely get into it in the film. It's It's somewhat sinister when you think about things like Alexa and that this was a sort of pronounced decision by the company to get this this data from people. I mean, one question we always ask at Motherboard and Threader Reporting here is just, how much does it listen to us? Well, it, uh, it you know, it, it's it's listening when it's awake. And so um, when that blue light is on and the, the, the device is awake, it's listening and it's also recording. I think that's something that most people don't really recognize, that there are recordings being made. And often those recordings are going off and getting helping to train the algorithms and helping to train the the AI. But um, it was actually Bloomberg that reported it a few months ago that there are teams of thousands of human beings listening to those recordings, not all of them, but a fraction of them in order to train Alexa better. And it's something that was really fun about the film. I mean, we got access to a lot of 
the top execs at Amazon and got to interview Dave Limp, who's the head of devices there, and got to ask him, you know. Oh, did, yeah, that was a that was a good interview. Did, I mean, he's <laughs> asking him about, you know, just did you do a good enough job disclosing to your consumers that there could potentially be human beings listening to these recordings? And, he, you know, he admits he if he could go back in time, he'd do it. But, you know, it's it's. How much is it recording? It's recording everything that when it's awake and it's gleaning a huge amount of information about us. And, you know, I'm curious what people are going to think after they see the film about, you know, the, the sort of the power that you're handing over to Amazon, both in the race for AI and also just your personal intimacies. How is it that you convinced tens of millions of people to put what is essentially a, a listening device in their homes? Well, I... I would first disagree with the premise. It, it, it doesn't, it's not a listening device. The, the device in its core is a, it has a detector on it. We call it internally a wake word engine. And that detector is listening, not really listening, it's detecting one thing and one thing only, which is the word you've said that you want to get the attention of that echo. And uh, what was really cool too is that a former senior manager at Amazon Web Services, this guy, um, Robert Frederick, I asked him just in the course of a long interview about his time at the company, you know, do you turn off your Alexa devices? He has one in every room of his house. He's kind of a oh, major techie. Yeah, and he's like, listen, no, when I, when I, I'll disable the microphone anytime I want to have a private conversation or a private moment. Of course I'm going to do that for the, you know, to avoid the chance that she wakes up and records something private and potentially some human being in Romania listens to it. And that's, that's, he instructs his kids to do the same. So, you know, you, the people that are in the know are aware um, of, of how valuable that data is and that these essentially are listening devices, even though Dave Limp, the head of devices, doesn't like to call them that. I'm pretty sure it was Limp in that interview where you ask him essentially, like, this is kind of 1984-ish. <laughs> and he says, oh, I don't want to live in 1984 but then describes his company and what they do. And you're kind of like, my guy, like, what, is there some sort of cognitive dissonance going on here? Yeah, I, it was kind of, it was really fun to ask executives questions like that because I don't think they field questions like that regularly. You know, I, I read him back a quote from Orwell's 1984, basically a quote about what it would be like to live in a, a state in which everything was listened to all the time. And if you think about it, I mean, you know, it, with a funny thing, I was staying in a, hotel in Seattle doing those interviews there it was a it was a Alexa enabled hotel room I'm like this is amazing you know you get into an Alexa enabled car and on the way to the interviews and then you're in this Alexa environment and so I asked him all about the fact that you know we kind of at a certain point can't opt out of the systems that they're creating but he you know that sort of self-reflection isn't necessarily what they're in the business of doing. He just thinks, you know, he gave this answer, which was a very techno-optimist answer, which is like, well, what do you want us to stop inventing? In George Orwell's 1984, he describes a dystopia in which you had to live, you did live, from habit that became instinct, in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard. And I wonder if you ever think about how easily this could become dystopian to some degree. Well, I don't want to live in that world. So I do not want to invent the technology that, or have my teams invent the technology that would create that world. And so, but I am an optimist. I, I, I think if you take the, the 
absolute view of that, we wouldn't invent anything. Which is such a cop out answer when you think about it, because it's, it's so so what you get if you if you keep inventing sinister devices, it's well I just I have to keep inventing, so why not? I mean, the interesting thing is, is of course they don't see it as sinister. They see it as that they're delivering something that consumers want. And what's so fascinating about Amazon, and certainly it's true of a lot of the tech companies, but I think it's very pronounced in Amazon, is a belief in their way, that they're actually doing something good. We live in a consumer society. People, they've sold 100 million of these devices. These devices, Alexa's enabled, like with, it empowers hundred, I think, a hundred thousand different, different compatible devices. I mean, people love these things, so they see that as proof positive that they're doing the right thing, and the Amazon way is the right way to go. So central to this documentary is obviously Jeff Bezos. So I, you know, I, I thought I, I thought some of the personal details you you you, you kind of take t- take out of the out of him. And show us that I don't think a lot of people realize and just that evolution of this sort of kind of like quirky guy who's got this startup to like now this muscular, you know, well-dressed tech titan guy. I mean, walk me through sort of that evolution because I thought that really worked well in this. And it it shows something about somebody who has massive amounts of power, not only in the United States, but in the world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a big shout out to my co-producer, Megan Robertson, who essentially spent the past year digging up every shred of footage that exists of Jeff Bezos. And it it was much easier to do that with Mark Zuckerberg because it's Facebook and he would, you know, speak to camera a lot and post things. Jeff Bezos is a very private person. But what's so remarkable is that through creating this archive of, of Jeff Bezos through the years, we were able to present this evolution from the really goofy, geeky dude in 1995 who's starting up Amazon, um, which one very early employee discusses about, you know, he's wearing, he's a nondescript sandy-haired guy sitting at a desk. He's in this sort of tech, you know, geek uniform of a blue Oxford with khakis. He was, you know, his his diet was basically like, you know, Pillsbury dough rolls. He he was Mountain you know, Dew, <laughs> and and he basically. And what what's what's interesting is that even at that point, this guy James Marcus, who was an early employee there, said it belied this Napoleonic ambition. The ambition was always there. I mean, Jeff Bezos always had, as he put it, domination, domination on his mind. mind from the beginning. One of his sort of second in command people said to me, "You have to understand that Jeff." wants to sell many more things than books. And Jeff's idea is that uh, in the near distant future, you could buy a kayak from Amazon. And if and after you bought the kayak, you could figure out good places to kayak and buy travel services from Amazon. So those ambitions were very clear. And this was very early on. But he was clearly thinking in those terms from the get-go. He saw a way in to dominate e-commerce through this book website and has pursued that goal ever since. And I think that when you watch his evolution, and this is my personal opinion, he's kind of becoming the guy that was he always was. You know, it's sort of like the superhero coming out in this like strong exoskeleton. But like he's revealed his true colors in terms of this like very muscular titan. But in his head, he's always been that. Well, and you, you call him this in the film, essentially, or you at least uh, inferred he's a sort of a conqueror. You know, he's 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 become this conqueror. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things, and it's an interesting insight into Bezos, is that in 2011, he wrote this memo called the Amazon.love memo, and he sent it out to his so-called S-team. These are his senior leadership team, a bunch of guys that he's that have been there for a very long time and are very senior. And the .love memo was a sort of thing where Jeff was grappling with what kind of company Amazon was becoming and knowing full well that big companies are not liked. Goldman Sachs isn't liked. ExxonMobil isn't liked. Walmart isn't liked. So how do they avoid that? And so he comes up with this list of like what's cool and what's not cool. And he's like, Conquerors, not cool. Explorers, cool. You know, defeating little guys, not cool. You know, it, and and it's a list of all these attributes that are cool or not cool. And the interesting thing is, is that, you know, this was an identity statement of what's cool and not cool. But at the same time, it is a bit incongruous with their behavior, you know, in, in reality. Incongruous with their behavior in reality, but not the public image they think that they have. And that's what I found really fascinating about that list was you read it and you're it sort of belies a very clever and, you know, observant person. He, they are cool. Those things aren't cool. And I think most people in mainstream society would think that. And th- there's something quite brilliant to that. That's like for me anyways, when I see these massive companies, especially Amazon, you're like this this guy knows how to manipulate the messaging. Certainly does. And that's one of the interesting things, too. I mean, in, in stark contrast to people like Zuckerberg and other titans who've put themselves out there much more, Jeff Bezos, you watch the footage that 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 we've gathered, uh, th- this huge archive of footage, he essentially has been repeating himself almost verbatim since he started the company. He has cultivated a public image that is so tightly choreographed, it's almost remarkable. I mean, it's totally remarkable. It is it's completely remarkable. And so, you know, what we could have done supercuts all day. We could have filled two hours of supercuts of him saying the same things over and over. About and that it. laugh. Yeah, and that laugh. <laughs> Both of those things about talking about customer obsession, telling the same story and anecdotes about his childhood. You know, he never, ever goes off message. And, um, and I think that that's in some ways been a, a brilliant way of defining what Amazon is. And the other thing is he's played the media masterfully. You know, you go back in time and you look at when there were the first signs that there may be problems with workplace conditions in the warehouses. For years, Amazon has put a happy face on its business and its workforce. Give a little bit, give a little bit even in Amazon's commercials, the people are almost like shadows and silhouettes. It's all about boxes. And there's just like happy boxes singing and bumbling their way to your door. Like, oh, no, no. There's so much that we need. Hello. They don't want you to even think about how they do this. They just want you to be wowed and, oh, how'd this, how'd this get here? I'll give a little bit of my love to you. They wanted people to just think, whoa, magic. He was on 60 Minutes unveiling a drone, okay? And there's, you know, 60 Minutes is all psyched about this drone, this big surprise, and it takes all the attention away, this shiny new bauble from some of the concerns about what's really going on. And mind you, there hasn't been any drone deliveries in this country. And that 60 Minutes piece was, you know, six some odd years ago. So, yeah. you know, that's that's pretty brilliant. It, it, he's he's a master at this. And, you know, I I do think that one of the, 
the best things in this documentary that you really point out is his pivot to Washington. Because it, it's affected so much with Amazon, right? Like, he actually made a concerted decision to buy a massive property in Washington and start lobbying in that city, which is, you know, ostensibly the most powerful city in the world, or one of them. And it worked. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. That was that was during the Obama years, and it was around the same time, basically, that he was writing this dot-love memo internally and thinking about what it meant to become a big, multifaceted corporation. The memo is another example of Jeff being very prescient about the future. It's Jeff grappling with the idea that not all big companies are loved, that there is something that we get uncomfortable with when we talk about very big companies. Rudeness is not cool. Defeating tiny guys is not cool. Risk-taking is cool. Winning is cool. Polite is cool. Defeating bigger, unsympathetic guys is cool. Inventing is cool. Explorers are cool. Conquerors are not cool. Some businesses, you can tell when you go in and have meetings with them, they have a conqueror mentality. And there's a big difference between being a conqueror and being an explorer. And I think in you know, this very inventive space that we're in, um, it pays to explore. And yes, he, he not only buys the largest private residence in the nation's capital, he bought the hometown newspaper in the Washington Post, which has been a terrific thing for the Washington Post and for journalism, and you, one could argue for our democracy, but it also still is... The richest person on the earth owns the home, you know, owns the paper of record in the nation's capital. And he's, he's, it looks good for him. It's a part of that, you know, what is cool? Yes. Promoting journalism and the freedom of speech. Democracy dies in darkness. And he's out there talking about that. And yes, and he has an interesting aspect of his personality that really comes through, I think, in terms of seeing himself as a bit of a savior. He really sees himself, I think, as a superhero to some extent. Saving the Washington Post, he went on his own dime and and found the Apollo 11 rockets under the sea. I mean, that's like a feat of all feats. He's he's trying to save humanity by building, you know, wanting to build infrastructure to go to space. And just, you know, just this week, um, coincidentally timed before this documentary comes out, he announces that he's given $10 billion to basically fund initiatives to help the planet um, and avoid climate catastrophe. So it's, he's, he's, that's a big part of his personality. And I, I, you know, I, I can't, I can't doubt whether it's genuine or not, but um, what it, what it is, is certainly um, cultivating an image for himself. So tell me if I'm wrong here, this is my interpretation, but one thing that I, I, I thought, throughout this documentary was that you're painting a picture of a Leviathan, something so powerful, and it might be too late to rein it in. I kind of want to know, what are, your, what are your takes on this? Like, what, do you, what do you see Amazon's next move, and do you think it, it can be reined in? You know, on one hand, I like to take the long view of history and think that there have been Leviathans in the past and giants. You know, if you think, if you think about Sears, right? The Sears Tower was the tallest building in America, it was a company that did so much more than just was a department store. They were home building and all these other aspects of our lives. And, you know, Sears is bankrupt. It's, 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 a, it's done. And so Leviathans have existed in the past, but I do think that digital platforms are in some ways substantively different than the companies, the huge 
behemoth companies of the past in that they have, you know, a company like Amazon has network effects and it has returns on scale. And these are things that these tech platforms have that no other companies have had to this extent. And it may mean that they are not, it's, they can't necessarily be reined in in the same way as old companies would have been. But there are really smart people, and there are even really smart people in Washington, D.C., thinking through what these tech platforms really are and coming up with some very interesting ideas about ways to rein them in, essentially, you know, limiting the lines of business that they can be in, limiting what they can do with data, limiting their ability to collect certain data. So I don't believe that, that you know, that this is a foregone conclusion, but, um, you know, it really depends on our Congress people and our regulators and our enforcers to do something. And uh, given the political situation right now, I'm not so sure we can all be um, sure that anything's going to happen. Well, I mean, this is the thing. You know, I've reported a lot on the military industrial complex and on intelligence. And one thing I can say is that when companies want to avoid the scrutiny of the government, they become sort of pseudo cogs in the government machine in that they become part of the government infrastructure. Mm. And when you look at something like Amazon and just how close it is now to the CIA and the NSA, and this isn't even conspiracy theory. This is, this is you know, above board contracts you can find on the internet that are there mm-hmm. that everyone agrees to. And you, you realize that these types of companies like Amazon are now, the government has an interest in making sure it stays mm-hmm. and, it, and it continues to have the power that it does just like they did with telcos. So it's how do you rein in something that is that powerful? Well, I think that you you look at what happened to telecom companies, for instance. I mean, they are considered common carriers in this country and uh, as railroads were. And so maybe there are some solutions out there in terms of thinking of Amazon and some of the other big tech, tech flat platforms in that way. Um, but I fully agree with you. I think that, you know, when going back to Washington, D.C., you know, Amazon is going to open its second headquarters, a stone's throw from the Pentagon. Um, they are, they are, they had bid very heavily for this Jedi contract, a $10 billion contract that then was awarded to Microsoft, but now is being contested. Um, but they do have a lot of cloud computing contracts with the government, the Air Force, as you mentioned, the CIA. There's, there's, a, there's a very, very strong merging between Amazon and the, and the federal government right now. Andy Jassy and Jeff Bezos have said they want governments to hurry up and regulate how law enforcement can use facial recognition. But in the meantime, Amazon has forged ahead and has even discussed its services with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. At Amazon Web Services. And the U.S. military. Jeff Bezos is all about it. He said the tech titans should not turn their back on the DOD. If they do, this country is going to be in trouble. So he sees a huge role for himself and his company in national security. He also sees it in that his space company, Blue Origin, is going after federal contracts with the intelligence agencies to get satellites up into space and with, the, um, with, the, with NASA, of course. And so the, 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 the boundaries are certainly getting blurred day by day. And uh, it's something I really hope a lot of reporters start to pay more attention to. Yeah, it's almost as if he's got Hollywood right now in his back pocket, which we all know he does. And then now he's also got DC, two very powerful entities to be uh, to be to be cozy with. 
Yes, I, I do. I do think it, it, it's worth mentioning, though, that there is competition in each of these domains, right? I mean, yes, he's Hollywood. He's one of many studios in Hollywood, and there is a net benefit to you know. I got a lot of screenwriter friends and actor friends and gaffers and whatnot. They're all employed, <laughs> and there's a huge um, renaissance of 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 culture, uh, pop culture making out there. Which is which is exciting and 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 has a net a net benefit, um, but I do think that you can't miss the forest through the trees, which is basically the fact that, you know, his his influence is right at the heart of popular culture and it's right at the heart of government. Well, I I have to do one more shout out to Chris O'Coin, who was an editor here at Vice, who I've worked with very many years, who did an excellent job working with you because you guys killed it. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, and and a, a big shout out to Chris, who who's who was my partner throughout this whole thing, and is a terrific dude, terrific guy. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So Jason, you just come back from a, a lovely holiday. Step off the plane and go on into the recording booth, huh? Just getting a nice, nice, nice tan too. A little glow. Get yeah, a little shimmy. Th- it was great. I was uh, I logged offline for six full days. Like literally had no access to the internet at all for six days, and then I had very little access for the other four. No, it that- was great. I-, I haven't done that in ten years. I was gonna say that is a real cyber move. Yeah. Like an anti-cyber move. I read three books. Wow. Paper books. Paper books. Yeah, actually. Never checked your, your phone, nothing. I did have my phone and I played uh, crossword puzzles I had downloaded, but that's it. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like the dream. Yeah, I was on a boat. You're on a boat? I was on a boat. Do you do a little swimming? A lot of swimming. Saw so I saw an eagle ray. You know what an eagle ray is? What? It's it's like a what gi- is an eagle ray? I mean, it's a stingray, but it's a type like a of giant stingray. one. It's huge. Yeah, it's I don't really like it. It has a lot of uh, dots on it. Spotted eagle ray. It was amazing. So majestic. Probably terrifying though. It was way far. It was like down beneath me. Like you were. I was in the water above it. Oh, I don't it like was that. Sick. I'd be out. It was great. I'd be yeah. like, drag me back in. Yeah, but in the meantime, Motherboard continued to be a website and seemingly published good articles, even though I had nothing we did. to do with them. Yeah. We did. We published several, several nice, nice little, nice little scoops. Shall we talk about them? Let's talk about them. So our first, which is a big one for the tech industry, and a and a beat that I would say, dare I say it, Motherboard is dominating. We've been doing a lot of great work around labor and the tech industry, and we got a good story today about Kickstarter. Kickstarter became the first major tech company to unionize. 
wild. Great, it's huge. great stuff. It's a, it's a big deal because uh, we've seen a lot of organizing in the tech industry, as you mentioned, like a lot of worker protests. We had, uh, you know, walkouts at Google over some of their executives, uh, like sexism. And we've also had climate protests at Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook. Uh, and then we've had a lot of like gig economy type stuff where like Uber drivers go on strike and uh, Instacart people sort of uh, like going on strike for a few days, but we haven't had unionization yet. We've had like a lot of rumblings of it. And finally, Kickstarter was the first to take the plunge. And we've been saying that this is something that's that's going to be a story in 2020 is this kind of this this labor development that I think will be so it will affect a lot in this industry that we cover. Yeah, it's like it's one step further than the uh like walkouts that we've seen because it's like it's a level of organization that suggests workers are sort of widely want to take their their destiny back from these companies, I guess. So there's been a couple smaller ones. Uh there was a solar panel company in New York that unionized and then suddenly all of them were laid off. Uh, earlier last year that Lauren wrote about um, Instacart workers in, I believe, Minnesota unionized last week or two weeks ago. And then there were some Google contractors in Pittsburgh that unionized. But this is like Kickstarter's headquarters, like they're white collar employees. They're like, they're coders, they're customer support people. Like this is sort I, uh, of the real deal unionization. I got to wonder if some other massive company that has a lot of white collar workers that work in warehouses will finally succumb to this as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe. So that's, that's the thing. Like my point of view, my experience here is in the media industry mm-hmm. and this feels a lot like, I think it was 2015, 2016 when Gawker became the first company to unionize Mm -hmm. and then vice became the second like we announced soon after and then uh you know ever since then it's just been like a steady drip of companies unionizing so like vox media is unionized Uh, i think parts of conde nast are unionized slate i think is unionized you know salon is unionized refinery 29 is unionized like a lot a lot of the whole industry is unionized and it took, you know, one or two companies to do it. And I'm wondering if we'll see the same thing now that Kickstarter has done it. Yes, it's it's something to watch. And we've got two great reporters on it. We've got Edward and Lauren killing the game. Yeah. And, and the way this works is like they voted to unionize. So you sort of like announce your intentions and then you do an election with the NLRB, which is the National Labor Relations Board. And today, which is um, Tuesday... I guess you're listening to this later. Uh, they did the formal election, and it's like a majority vote. So more people voted to unionize than voted not to unionize. So now there is a union. Like, there's no more. The step that comes after this is you bargain for a contract. Collective that, bargaining, bargaining. Yeah, so that could take a little while. But, like, the process has started. Yeah. Like, a lot of other people have been like, oh, yeah, like, we're trying to unionize, but... The fact that they were able to win a vote means that it's happening, like it is officially happening. And in other labor tech news, we also have a story that came out last Friday about Target and a Target-owned company called Shipped and how they're treating some of their 
they're gig workers. This was a wild one. This is a, like a new, new and interesting wrinkle to the gig economy. Um, so Shipped is a delivery company that was purchased by Target a few years ago. And once it was bought by Target, it was blown up to be like a much bigger company. So they do like same day delivery from Target stores, similar to like Instacart does like your grocery shopping for you, like Shipped does that too. Um, they do it for grocery stores, but they also do it for Target stores. So like rather than going to Target myself, I can be like, hey, Ben, go buy me a bunch of shit from Target and bring it to my house and you'll get like $4 for it. And like a lot of gig like gig uh, economy companies, I don't even know what you call them, like TaskRabbit, uh, DoorDash, Postmates, et cetera, et cetera. They have like an interesting payment model, which for a while was just like, okay, you got 10% of like a 10% commission or something. And they've recently changed it to be like more of an algorithmic pay model that takes into account like traffic as well as how many items there were and some other stuff. And the shipped workers say that they've been getting a lot less money uh, since they've switched to this algorithmic pay model. And so it's like, there's no transparency. So people don't know what they're going to get paid until they actually get it. And then they also say that they're given assignments based on an algorithm too. And that algorithm, you know, I don't know what it takes into account. It takes into account like your reviews as well as how often you work and that sort of thing. But what we're learning or what Lauren learned is that people are mad. Like sh there's 100,000 shipped workers all over the country and they have all these user groups online. So they have like Facebook groups, they have message boards, they have, you know, places where they talk about how things are going. And on these message boards, people will be like, oh, I don't, I'm getting paid a lot less now and I don't like it. And they start getting deactivated from the shipped app. So what was happening is shipped, which is owned by target. So essentially like target had moderators and like spies on these message boards and would look at anyone who's being negative and was, you know, deleting their posts off of these message boards and Facebook groups, and then also deactivating their app, meaning essentially they were fired without being told why. I mean, like, this is this is how this industry's been working now. It is. Like, it, Amazon's like, doing the same stuff. It's sort of this way of, it's it's pinching the highway kind of thing, you know? Like, you can't actually break into this and make money off of shipping or things like that because the companies that are operating the systems are the ones that are ultimately profiting from them. And they're all funded by VCs. So and they're all funded by VCs. So, so they can, everything is artificially low. And they can take a hit. It's like how the mafia works, right. literally. Like mafia does that in Italy. They, they, they grab an industry and they pump it full of cash and they, they kill all the competition. Yeah, and then they <laughs> pump up the price. But like in this case, they haven't really pumped up the price yet or as they are pumping up the price like... The VC money is run out, so the wages are going down. And, like, they're all classifying these workers as uh, independent contractors and saying, like, oh, be your own boss. Uh, you know, you can own your own company. But it's, like, it's serfdom, really, because it is. these people are not running businesses. They are, like, and they're not their own boss because their boss is an algorithm. And it's a it's a it's an opaque algorithm that they don't understand. And no one can understand because no one knows how it works. And then, yeah, so on these message boards, apparently people who did things like 
brought their clients gifts like balloons or bought them like candy and stuff were getting like more jobs. At least that's the allegation. And so like it's shipped, not the key to my heart. But, yeah. Uh, so shipped is like uh, I think they call it like quote bringing the magic. So not oh, only wow. are these people like you know working for essentially underpaid workers like delivery workers for rich people, they're also encouraged to use their own money to like buy them gifts and shit. And also, uh, in one case, there's like a photo of a woman who was walking her client's dog. Like, it's just very bizarre. It's like, it's it's one of the more dystopian gig economy like situations I can think of. It's wild. Yeah. So moving on to my my resident favorite topic. Do we have a, do we have a name for this? I forget. Is it UFO Hour? UFO Corner? Let's just Ben's, call it UFO Corner. Ben's UFO Ben's Corner. Ben's UFO Corner. Love it. We did an entire episode. I know. It was good. MJ. Here's another MJ story. MJ Benias, who is... Killing uh, the game. He is a great reporter, great UFO reporter. And he wrote about... Actually, it was someone else's scoop. Uh, Tim McMillan, who has also written for Motherboard, wrote an article for Popular Mechanics about... I don't know how people say it out loud, but it's A-A-T-I-P. I call it A-TIP. And I forget what it stands for. It's the Pentagon's like advanced aeronautic tactical I something program. Yeah. Yeah. Intelligence. Who knows? It's basically, it was the program that the uh, Pentagon set up with a black budget to investigate UFOs. UFOs. Yeah. And so, so it was cool. a huge, yeah, it was like the huge New York Times story from like three, four years ago where they learned that like Robert Bigelow, who's a billionaire who used to own Skinwalker Ranch, yep. which y'all talked about on that episode. Mm-hmm. Exotic uh, alien alloys. Yeah. He, so like this guy owns Bigelow Airspace and he's a UFO obsessed billionaire who was doing research on UFOs at Skinwalker Ranch. And like very recently, the Pentagon was like, oh yeah, a tip, a tip uh, had nothing to do with UFOs. Like, Nothing to see here, folks. Uh, but Tim McMillan in this popular mechanics story and MJ in his follow-up reporting talking to the Pentagon learned that it was about UFOs. And like they had leaked documents from Bigelow Airspace, which was one of the contractors that was like investigating exotic propulsion and uh, like specifically was uh, investigating UFOs and was also uh, apparently investigating some exotic injuries that they was said. the part that i was like what the fuck some people got exotic propulsion injuries something like that yeah what what does that even mean and like the bummer is is that just like it's, it's not just explained like, yeah, you know you're just like so we covering don't know. up for like some alien dissections or whatever like what what is it you know i want to know ufos is still a, a relatively new topic for motherboard like we've covered off and on through the years but we sort of made like a concerted decision to be like yeah let's like cover you know the culture around the ufos the like military uh research into it the money that's being spent on it like these things that can be tom delong yeah tom delong <laughs> like the things that can be verified like we're obviously not running like a bunch of conspiracy theories and no, I, was like, no. I was like oh probably like there'll be three or four stories and then we'll run out of things to write about but it's every week Every week there's a new UFO thing. I know. I keep thinking I'm not going to be talking about this for like a few months and then it's something else. Yeah, it's crazy. We have a story coming out later this week about UFOs too, but it'll come out after cyber. So we'll talk about it next week. So next week, I more got another UFOs. One. Yeah, I know. It's UFOs. just like, and also maybe if they, if they didn't dress it as such insanity, 
Like every time they're like, well, we can't confirm or deny there's UFOs or not, but we're just going to talk about alien alloys and exotic, ex- exotic propulsion injuries. injuries. Like, yeah. I'm starting to think they're doing this on purpose to fuck with me and everyone else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, l- okay, last shout out. Um, earlier this week, I think yesterday at this point, Joseph Cox ran another great uh, privacy-related sketchy. investigation. Sketchy, sketch, sketchness. Uh, Yodley. He, by the way, we call him Jojo Cox in this, oh, this shit, part yeah. of the segment. Let's be so, honest. So, yeah, another Jojo scoop. Uh, Yodley, which is a company I had never heard of. It's always a company you never heard of. Uh, is... A company, the the country's biggest financial data broker. So they collect all of the like credit card transactions and bank account transactions of millions and millions of Americans and then sell it to finance firms. And they say that they strip out all of the uh, personally identifiable information. But Joseph got some leaked documents from within Yodley that found that it's like quite easy to... Uh, determine who bought what and where and that data is being sold to uh like Citibank and I don't know HSBC uh god it's just, HSBC right we yeah HSBC yeah we're we're just living in like the Leviathan yeah <laughs> sometimes Anyways, these Jojo stories it's good investigation it is sometimes these Jojo stories just straight up bum me out they bum me out yeah they do they're good though. They're important. They're fantastic. It's important work. It's very important work. Yeah. Well, right. I, I would say it's good to be back, but uh, you know, I was on the beach for ten days. Was, not worrying it pretty, about this. it was pretty good to be there too. Yeah. Not worrying about the like the Big Brother machine we all live in, dude. I think this was the only time I was off the grid because I was in a sailboat with no, like, no service, no means of contacting anyone. And I don't think that you could have found me. Like, I don't think if you needed to get in touch with me, I don't think it would have been possible. Yeah, I know. Sick. That's so sick. Yeah. Well, on that note, Paid everyone. All cash. Yeah. <laughs> on that note, everyone, listen to this uh, podcast on your cell phones using the internet. Yeah. Bye. Bye. This week's episode was recorded by John Northcraft, produced by me, and voiced by me and edited by Ricardo Contreras. You'll be hearing from us next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.